You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 158, The Battle of Brandywine. Last week, I left off with the British Army commanded by General Howe, having landed at Maryland, skirmished with the Continentals in Delaware, and then moved westward into Pennsylvania in a march toward Philadelphia. The Continentals, under General Washington, pivoted from Delaware into Pennsylvania, where they deployed along Brandywine Creek, prepared to confront the British advance there. Brandywine Creek is a relatively small waterway that begins with the merger of two smaller creeks about 30 miles west of Philadelphia. It then flows down into Wilmington, Delaware, before merging with the Christiana Creek and then into the Delaware River. The waterway was not big enough to sail ships, but it was deep enough in most places during this era to prevent men from fording across. That said, there were a number of fords along the creek where the army could cross. The Continentals deployed around those fords and planned to force the enemy to cross that water in the face of enemy fire if they wanted to advance. General Washington believed the most likely crossing point would be at Chad's Ford, a small village in Pennsylvania about two miles north of the border with Delaware. By September 9, 1777, his Continentals had secured Chad's Ford as well as two other fords just upstream from Chad's. They also secured Pyle's Ford to the south in Delaware. This left flank of the Continental Army included divisions commanded by Major Generals Anthony Wayne and Nathaniel Green, along with Pennsylvania militia. Major Generals John Sullivan, Adam Stephen, and Lord Sterling took command of the heights above Chad's Ford, where they covered the Army's right flank. Beyond their divisions further north, Colonel Moses Hazen covered two smaller fords further upriver, Buffington's Ford and Wistar's Ford, a.k.a. Shunk's Ford. In the event of an enemy movement toward those fords, the nearby reinforcements of the Army's right flank could be deployed there. Buffington's Ford was actually north of the place where the Brandywine splits into two smaller branches. To reach that, the enemy would have to ford both the west branch and the east branch of the creeks in order to reach the continental side. On the British side, General Wilhelm von Neiphausen marched his Hessians to Kennett Square, only a few miles from Chad's Ford, where the Americans were already deployed. General Howe did not realize that Neiphausen would move so quickly and expected him to camp several miles further back. By the time Neiphausen received General Howe's orders, he had already set up camp at Kennett Square and had no interest in packing up and marching back several miles that night. Instead, he ordered his army to camp without campfires 
in hopes of keeping their position a secret from the enemy. By the morning of September 10th, Howe's regulars also reached Kennett Square. The army of about 15,000 combined regulars and Hessians was united and ready. General Howe was not going to charge into battle without first getting the lay of the land. Although he landed in Maryland with few detailed maps or intelligence about the area, he had been working with local Tories to get what he needed. Joseph Galloway, who opted to confirm his loyalty to the king after attending the First Continental Congress, had fled his home in Philadelphia to join the British in New York City. He traveled with Howe to Maryland and served as a local guide. Howe also received guidance from other local residents, including many Quakers who lived in the area and knew it well. On top of that, Howe sent out scouts to determine enemy positions. So the two armies sat on September 10th as Howe gained intelligence and finalized his plans. On the morning of September 11th, General von Neiphausen marched his army of about 6,800 mostly Hessian soldiers toward Brandywine Creek. Although the day would be a hot one, the morning was still chilly, and a dense fog hid much of the two armies from each other. The hilly terrain also made it difficult to track the enemy. Leading Neiphausen's column was Ferguson's riflemen and the Queen's Rangers, a Loyalist regiment. Both Ferguson's riflemen and the Queen's Rangers wore green coats, resulting in them often being mistaken for Hessians during much of the battle. That same morning, as the British and Hessians began their march, American General William Maxwell had sent scouts across the Brandywine to track enemy movements. An American company was eating some breakfast at Welch's Tavern when Ferguson's riflemen and the Queen's Rangers approached. The two sides exchanged fire as the Americans withdrew. These were the first shots fired at around 9 a.m. Maxwell's Continentals continued to harass the advancing British in a series of ambushes as the column moved toward the Brandywine. The few hundred Americans could not halt the British advance. Their intent was to harass the enemy until they reached the Brandywine, where the Americans would make their stand. As the battle moved slowly toward the creek, both sides took casualties. Ferguson's riflemen proved their worth, and the worth of Ferguson's newly invented breech-loading rifle with which they were armed, as his men picked off retreating Americans. Among those wounded was a young captain from Virginia named John Marshall, the future Chief Justice of the United States. By around 10.30 a.m., Neipelsen's main column had reached Brandywine Creek. Rather than attempt to cross, he brought up his artillery and simply fired across the creek at the enemy. General Washington was observing the battle through a telescope from a house a short distance from the battle. It became clear that the force attacking them was not the entire British army. Many of his generals feared that the army in front of them was simply meant to amuse them, while another force marched around in a flanking maneuver to attack them from a different direction. That was exactly the same tactic that General Howe had used against them on Long Island. Washington sent out scouts in search of another enemy column, but received frustratingly inconclusive intelligence. In fact, General Howe had left camp before dawn and before General Neiphausen even began his march. 
Howe moved his regulars northward. Washington considered several options. One was that Howe was attempting a flanking maneuver on the Continental right flank. Another was that Howe was simply keeping the Continentals busy while he marched his army out to Lancaster to seize food and supplies that were stored there. A third possibility was that Howe marched north in order to get Washington to send part of his own army north to find Howe. Then General Howe could double back, join Neiphausen, and crush Washington's divided army. By noon, Washington decided that if Howe's army really had marched north, they would not participate in the day's battle. It would take them too long to find an unguarded ford upstream and then march all the way back south. Washington maintained a strong right flank in case they did show up there, but also began to send regiments across the Brandywine to engage with the enemy. If he could defeat Neiphausen's division before General Howe arrived, he could then focus all of his army on just Howe's division and defeat the divided army in detail. Before he could commit his army to attack, General Sullivan sent intelligence, which he received from a major spear that there was no sign of the enemy to the north. If that was true, Howe was likely doubling back to meet up with Neiphausen. Fearing that possibility, Washington opted not to commit his army to an attack across the creek, but held in his defensive positions. Washington also recalled Lord Sterling and General Stevens' divisions to move from the right flank back to the center so that the army could be united against an expected full-on British assault across the creek. Washington's intelligence, however, proved incorrect. General Howe had, in fact, marched more than half of his army north, leaving in the pre-dawn hours before von Neiphausen began to march to the Brandywine. As many officers guessed, von Neiphausen's attack was in fact a feint to distract the Continentals while Howe's larger force could move into position to attack the American right flank. Howe took advantage of local information from the Tories to march his army six miles to the north along back roads. He crossed the Brandywine Creek north of where it forked into two branches. He crossed both the west branch and the east branch of the Brandywine at completely unguarded fords. One of the Hessian officers leading his column, Johann Ewald, noted that the army had to pass through a narrow ravine where a few hundred defenders could have held the army at bay for hours. He was concerned about a possible ambush as he marched his men through, but the Americans were nowhere to be found. General Howe had moved his entire division of about 8,000 soldiers onto the east bank and prepared to attack the American right flank from the north. Howe had marched north about eight miles to get around the army. By the time Howe had gotten his army across the Brandywine, it was a little after 1 p.m. A local who supported the Patriots spotted the army and galloped down to inform General Washington. At first, Washington was convinced of his earlier intelligence that said the British were not to his north and brushed off the civilians' comments as an excited local who was exaggerating what he saw. However, after receiving several more reports, Washington realized that he was in trouble, that Howe was about to crash into his weakened right flank and crush the Continental Army. Washington quickly redeployed the divisions under Stephen and Sterling to move back to the north 
and reinforced the right flank. He ordered General Sullivan to advance on Howe's army and engage the enemy. The Continental divisions that had been recalled earlier had to run back to their positions to the north in order to meet the enemy. Stephen and Sterling marched their men over three miles in less than half an hour. The American defenses were still in chaos when the British advance corps came within eyesight of the Americans. By this point, they were less than a mile away. General Howe could have ordered a charge and scattered the disorganized Continentals. Instead, though, Howe ordered his army to rest and have lunch. Howe sat with his officers for half an hour to an hour. They enjoyed tea and talked over their options. Instead of taking advantage of the surprised and disorganized American defenses, Howe gave them time to organize their lines. This is just another example of General Howe taking a pause just when he is about to deliver the death blow, and why some of his detractors argue that Howe had no intention of actually winning this war. Again, I don't think Howe deliberately sabotaged the British cause. His men had just marched a grueling 17 miles and were tired and hungry. Giving them a short rest before charging into battle might help them fight better. Further, it's unclear whether Howe appreciated how disorganized the Americans' lines were and how much that time would give them to set their defenses. Taking advantage of the short reprieve, the Americans deployed a defensive line along Birmingham Hill. General Stephen commanded the right flank. General Lord Sterling commanded the center. And General Sullivan commanded the left flank. Stephen and Sterling got their men into place relatively easily. Sullivan's division had to march through heavily forested and rocky terrain, meaning that it took the soldiers longer to get into position, and they could not see the other division's positions as they were forming. By the time Sullivan had established his line, he realized that he was too far forward and had left a large gap between his division and Sterling's center. Sullivan rode off to meet with Sterling and make sure they were coordinated in their defense. He left his second-in-command, the French General Prudhomme de Boer, in command of his division. General de Boer did not speak English and did not really command the respect of his subordinates, leading to further command problems. While Sullivan was still away from his division, General Howe launched his attack around 4.30 p.m. Sterling and Stevens' divisions stood firm and repelled several assaults on their positions over the next hour and a half of intense fighting. Howe had left most of his artillery with Neiphausen, meaning that he had to primarily use infantry assault to take the position. British grenadiers and others among Howe's best regiments pushed back the soldiers from Sullivan's division and threatened the American left flank. Now, during this fighting, General Washington, along with General Lafayette, arrived on the scene and assessed the situation. At the same time, Howe's forces were storming Birmingham Hill. General Neiphausen, who had been distracting the Americans all day near Chad's Ford, heard the distant gunfire and understood that Howe was attacking. With that, Neiphausen ordered his division, which was nearly half of the entire British Hessian force, to storm across the Brandywine and take the American position. Since Washington had moved most of his defenders to Birmingham Hill, Neiphausen 
only had to contend with a smaller force composed of mostly militia. This force, under the command of General Anthony Wayne and supported by Generals Maxwell and Armstrong, could not hold off Neiphausen's assault. Washington realized that the two-pronged attack meant that both lines were about to fail. He had held in reserve General Nathaniel Greene's division to reinforce whichever line needed it. But even if he deployed Greene to one of these two lines, the other would almost certainly fall. Instead, Washington ordered Greene to move to a defensive position where he could form a rearguard action for his retreating army. Greene rushed his men into position, again marching about three miles in just over half an hour. As the American divisions defending Birmingham Hill gave way and retreated, Howe's forces advanced. At the same time, Wayne's defenders along the Brandywine Creek also retreated, giving Neiphausen control of the battlefield there. As Howe continued his advance, hoping to capture the American army, he ran into Greene's rear guard line, which had been reinforced by many of the soldiers who were retreating from Birmingham Hill. Howe attempted to roll up the right flank of Greene's defensive line as the soldiers put up a solid defense. Casimir Pulaski, a Polish soldier with the Continentals, saw this and organized an impromptu American cavalry charge into the British infantry advance, thus forcing the British to halt their attack. Pulaski had arrived in America a few months earlier. On the day of the battle, Congress was still debating whether to give him a commission, so technically he had no command authority. But at Washington's request, he organized and led this critical cavalry charge anyway. With the surprisingly strong American defensive line, and with dusk approaching, Howe called off his offensive and allowed the Continentals to retreat from the field. With nightfall, the Battle of Brandywine came to an end. With about 30,000 soldiers engaged on both sides, this would be one of the largest battles of the American Revolution. The British reported nearly 600 casualties, which is probably an undercount. The Americans estimated that they had inflicted over 2,000 British casualties, which is probably an overcount. The true number is probably closer to the British number, but likely a little higher. Especially hard hit was Ferguson's regiment and the Loyalist Regiment of Queen's Rangers. These units had led Neiphausen's column and took the brunt of the American ambushes as the column advanced. Captain Ferguson himself was shot in the arm and risked amputation for several weeks. His arm never fully recovered. There are no good records of the American casualties, but most estimates are that they were about double that of the British, between 1,200 and 1,300. About a third of those were captured prisoners although almost all of the captured were also wounded on the field. Thanks to General Greene's rearguard action, almost all the Americans who were able to walk or run were able to escape capture. The Americans did lose quite a few cannons, including several that they had captured from the enemy at Trenton a few months earlier. Perhaps the most significant casualty of the day was that of General Lafayette, who took a ball in the leg late in the day. It proved to be a relatively minor wound that would allow him to return to duty rather quickly. After the battle, Captain Ferguson reported that he had seen two American officers on the field 
whom he could have shot from his position with his rifle. However, since the officers had their backs turned toward him, he considered the shot to be dishonorable and did not take it. Later, from the description and the known position in the battle, Ferguson became convinced that he had had General Washington in his sights, possibly while conferring with Pulaski. Even so, he said later he did not regret his decision not to shoot. Sniping at officers was considered murder by many professional officers at the time. The highest-ranking officer who died over the encounter was not even on the field. On the day before battle, French General Ducordray, who sought to become the Continental Commander of Artillery, jumped on a horse in Philadelphia and rode out to join the Continental Army in the field. As he crossed the Schuylkill River, either on a ferry or a pontoon bridge, accounts differ, his horse got spooked and jumped into the river. With Ducordray caught in the horse's stirrups, both the horse and rider drowned. Later, his body was recovered and buried in Philadelphia. With the battle at an end, General Howe and General Neiphausen made camp near the battlefield and rested their army. General Washington and the Continentals spent another sleepless night making their escape from the British Army. Despite the loss, Washington put the best face on the day, reporting to Congress, Despite the day's misfortune, I am pleased to announce that most of my men are in good spirits and still have the courage to fight the enemy another day. Next week, I'm going to discuss the Continental Army's attempt to fight with the enemy another day, in the Battle of the Clouds. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. As always, I'd like to thank Trey Nance and George Davis for supporting this podcast on Patreon at the Alexander Hamilton Club level. Everyone who supports this show for as little as $2 a month helps me to keep the show free for everyone who cannot afford to support it. If you support the show at the standard bearer level or higher, which is $10 a month, you will also get a cool flag magnet with a different flag each month from the American Revolution. Thanks for everyone who listens, and especially to all the new listeners who join this week. I've always seen an increase right after Independence Day. I guess the holiday gets people thinking about the American Revolution and prompts many to search out this podcast. 
The week of July 5th was no exception. I got more downloads in that week than I got in the first 10 months combined that this podcast existed. I really appreciate everyone who takes an interest, and especially if you've taken the time to make it this far into the podcast. For anyone who's interested, I did an interview with Michigan Judge Michael Warren, who's also the co-founder of Patriot Week, about the ideological origins of the American Revolution. The specific topic of our conversation was, was the American Revolution fought for liberty? It was an interesting chat, and the full interview is now available on Vimeo. There's a direct link to it on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com, so feel free to watch it if that sort of thing interests you. Also, I've been posting more online events that other people are hosting and presenting, as long as they relate to the American Revolution. If you join my American Revolution podcast group on Facebook, you'll be able to get these posts. I've been debating whether to start an email mailing list for this kind of thing, and I may do that at some point, although the anti-spam laws make it difficult to do correctly. I have one correction from two weeks ago when I discussed the siege of Fort Henry. After the first ambush, I said that Captain Ogle rode out with his company to assist the survivors, but that he and several of his men were killed, with the remainder retreating back to the fort. In fact, while almost all of Ogle's company was killed in the ambush, the captain was able to take cover and survive the attack, eventually making his way back to the fort. Captain Ogle survived the entire war and moved out to what is today Illinois, living into his 80s. One of his descendants, Jim Angler, pointed out my error, and for that I thank him. This week, I talked about the Battle of Brandywine. In addition to being one of the largest battles of the war, it's always held a special place in my heart because I grew up only a few miles from the battlefield. I could actually see Brandywine Creek from my high school window. Many military historians like to divide the Revolutionary War into two eras. Brandywine was the last major battle of the first era, when the Continental Army was still considered rather amateur. After the coming winter at Valley Forge, with a better trained and men with longer enlistments having an impact, the Continental Army would come to be seen as a more professional army. The battle at Brandywine involved tens of thousands of men and was fought over many miles. The British used a successful flanking maneuver, just as they had done on Long Island a year earlier. Even so, Washington had been on the lookout this time for just such a move. His intelligence was not as good as it should have been, but he learned enough to leave himself an avenue of escape. Washington had learned that more important than holding a piece of ground was keeping his army intact and being able to come back for another attack another day. Two foreign officers greatly improved their reputations at this battle. Both General Lafayette and General Pulaski would grow in the esteem of Congress and the commander. As I'll discuss more next week, it also greatly damaged the reputation of French General de Boer. Each battle not only gave the Continental Army more experience, it also informed the commander about which of his top officers could get the job done and which could not. Brandywine was important for that reason as well. 
My book recommendation this week, not surprisingly, is about the Battle of Brandywine. Now, there are several good books on the battle, but the one I'm recommending today is called Brandywine, A Military History of the Battle That Lost Philadelphia But Saved America, September 11th, 1777, by Michael C. Harris. The book does a great job laying out events that led up to the 1777 campaign. It then goes into the battle itself in great detail. It's over 500 pages and includes several helpful appendices with extra information. The author, Michael Harris, has worked for the National Park Service. He also served as a guide for the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission at Brandywine Battlefield. So he's devoted much of his professional life to just this one battle. He's also working on another book that is due out later this year about the Battle of Germantown. I was fortunate enough to meet Mr. Harris when he did a presentation on Brandywine for the American Revolution Roundtable of South Jersey last year. He clearly knows his stuff, and he does a great job in presenting it. So, if you want to read more about the Battle of Brandywine, check out Harris's Brandywine, A Military History of the Battle That Lost Philadelphia but saved America. My online recommendation this week is another ebook on archive.org. This is an 1846 book called Some Account of the British Army under the Command of General Howe and of the Battle of Brandywine on the memorable September 11, 1777 and the Adventures of That Day by Joseph Townsend. The book gives a short summary of the battle but also provides some interesting local profiles of people who were involved. Another big chunk of the book uh, includes the original correspondence about the battle. For that reason, I found it quite helpful in understanding the Battle of Brandywine. As always, you can search for it on archive.org or use the direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com and, of course, the link also appears on the blog I have for this episode at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.